Hi, and welcome to the Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist, and I'm the online editor at Strad. As string players, we've all heard of the staple violin concertos. Mendelssohn, Bruch, Brahms, Beethoven, a lot of Bs, Tchaikovsky, etc. But how many of you have heard of the Julia Perry violin concerto? I wouldn't be surprised if he hadn't heard of it. And I don't mean that in a, they're my favourite band, you probably haven't heard of them kind of way. I mean that in the sense that Julia Perry was a composer who, despite her incredible achievements, has been somewhat overlooked in history. Here to shine a light on her work is violinist Curtis Stewart, who will be giving the premiere performance of Perry's Violin Concerto with the Experiential Orchestra and James Blatchley on the 2nd of December in New York. We spoke about the unexpected logistics of programming and unknown work, as well as the challenges that come with the piece, and why this work should be performed more often. Here's Curtis. Curtis, welcome Hello. to the Strad Podcast. Hello. Uh, <laughs> it's great to have you here today, and we're going to be talking about the violin concerto of Julia Perry. Yes. And Julia Perry is a composer that perhaps not as many people know her as they should. Mm -hmm. uh, she was born in 1924, died at the age of only 55 in 1979. I was doing a little bit of reading up on her and she had quite a prolific composing career. You know, she studied at Tanglewood and Juilliard, studied with Nadia Boulanger in Paris, yep. won two Guggenheim fellowships. And also you add to the fact that she was an African-American woman doing all of this during a time of civil and racial unrest in, in the US. Right. So it's kind of a chance for us to shine a bit of a light on this woman, this composer, and what better way than with you, Curtis? I can think of a couple other ways that would be great too, but you know, yes, thank you. <laughs> but also, you know, in light of the fact that you are giving the world premiere and the New York premiere of uh, a new edition of Perry's Violin Concerto, which includes her 1977 revisions. Right. So, you know, just illustrating the fact that she's a relatively obscured composer of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. How did you come across this piece? My quartet, public quartet, has been attempting to play the works of Julia Perry for years now. Uh, Janina Norpoth arranged her uh, Ye Sh Who Seek the Truth for Strings. That's a choral work. Um, we're going to be playing that on the concert. And we've been trying to figure out how to arrange her uh, prelude for piano for strings, which actually the Roger Zahab, who did this violin concerto, already arranged for string orchestra, which is a beautiful, beautiful piece. We've been trying to figure out how to uh, get in touch with Perry's works. Who, and one of the main reasons why it, it's so hard to play her works is that is the publishing. There is just isn't any publishing. She didn't have access to a publisher, all of her. So as a performer, you know, we're busy trying to just do the arrangements, get the commissions, uh, play the works, learn the works, etc. But the world of publishing and copyright is kind of for, very, extremely foreign to us. I'm very grateful to Roger Zahab at, I think he, he's in Pittsburgh, for getting the publishing for this, recreating it, you know, putting it into print, taking into account all of Perry's adjustments that she made. I think she finished the piece either in the late 60s or the early 70s, which is right when she had that stroke, which kind of both physically and financially just put her out of the game, essentially. Uh, but she mm. continued, she was a creative force and she continued to work on this piece and so there's edits that happened in 1977. I think the piece has actually only been performed once before by Roger in, in Pittsburgh. 
So the way I came into contact with this piece was James Blatchley from Experiential Orchestra gave me a call uh, in May. And he was like, yeah, I'm thinking about doing this piece by Julie Perry. And I was like, yes, that's that's how <laughs> that's how it happened. Just because I've been trying to play her work for a very long time and just haven't the, just the logistic industrial pieces of playing new works. It just didn't work out. It's hard to facilitate that by yourself, isn't it? So when you find other musicians who are enthusiastic about putting on this project as well then it's easier to come together. I did have a little listen to the piece on YouTube. I want you to tell me your take on the piece. You know, what do you love about this piece as well as the challenges? I mean, I know that it starts with quite an extensive solo cadenza. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how is that for you? Well, yeah, there's two big cadenzas in the piece, uh, one at the beginning and one towards the the very end. One is very lyrical, a lot of double stops and, you know, jumping from the high to low registers all the time. And she's presenting the material that it's a very focused work. So it's really focused on this kind of major third going to tritone theme, as well as the movement of that in perfect and perfect fifths and fourths. So it's like the whole piece is essentially based on that, those two ideas, uh, as far as I can see. And so the, the cadenza at the beginning is like an exposition of those ideas. And then we, she just puts it through the ringer. It's essentially like a lot of theme and variations on that. So a lot of her work was for vocal uh, artists. And you can really feel that there's a kind of sense of the spiritual throughout the work. That mixed with this kind of rhythmic metamorphosis so you, you even see that in her small, I think it's a, the small p- short piece for orchestra or small piece for orchestra, where there's a theme that obviously gets passed around instruments very inventively. But in addition to that, at each time something gets passed around, there's a um, kind of rhetorical rhythmic change that happens that makes it feel like she's speaking or talking or singing through those instruments. And so for me, interpreting it, it makes me want to just explore that and figure out how I can be even more rhetorical in my expression of it. And it makes me feel like I can speak through the instrument. But yeah, it's hard. The second cadenza is just like really just extremely fast. <laughs> it's so fast that the, the, the uh, second edition brought the, the original tempo down 20 clicks, which is oh, a lot. Wow. 20 clicks, yeah. that's a lot. Uh, but I'm like, no. No, <laughs> we're going to go with, I've learned this at 148, and then you told me now that it's going to be 125. No, thank you. I'm, anyway, so I'm messing around with um, just that, <laughs> that sense of whoosh and um, excitement. It's really fun. And actually, that cadenza, it's not different, but it's very kind of um, distinct from the rest of the piece. In addition to the minor third tritone and the movement by fourth and fifths, there's this kind of like alternating... thing that happens throughout the whole piece and she just takes that and blows it up at the end in extremely fast runs so I'm just going up and down the instrument and doing all that kind of stuff bit of a physical workout yeah oh yeah one one to definitely get your heart rate up that's right that's the thing that sort of leads me to what I want to ask you next about how you interpret a new piece like this because obviously there isn't like this big back catalog of tradition with a piece that hasn't been performed that many times hasn't been recorded you know recorded once that we know of Mm -hmm. on YouTube and also the fact that it hasn't been published Mm. so you know how do you make 
the piece your own. I know that you've sort of made your decision between 142 and 125 or whatever, <laughs> but like, <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you make those informed decisions when there's sort of nothing that's really gone before mm-hmm. this performance? Well, it relates to a lot of music. It sounds like uh, you can hear the influence of Nadia Boulanger. You can hear the horizontal versus vertical writing. I mean, I would like to think when I play more quote-unquote traditional works, Mozart, Brahms, Mendelssohn, all that, I try to approach music the same way, which is from a more theoretical, composerly standpoint, understanding what the the structures that the composer is trying to use and create, in addition to exploring the harmony and how it makes me feel and what tone I want to use and the phrase lengths and all that type of stuff. I mean, I also play just a ton of new music and I improvise and I compose myself. For me, it's, it's an awesome opportunity for me to just dig into that work, something new. It's a, also a lot of pressure just because I don't want people to come away from that performance thinking, oh, that, you know, what what is a poor performance can can reflect on a piece of music too. You know, if, I wouldn't yeah. say poor, but if, 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 the, if the performance isn't energetic and precise and kind of muscular in a certain way, people forget that, you know, the, it's the performer's fault too. So they, they go away thinking, that the, oh, that piece was too long or that piece was kind of thorny or this piece was, you know. I mean, if you just listen to recordings of the Rite of Spring, Bartok mm. quartets, Schoenberg string quartets by the early Juilliard and Hungarian quartet recordings of those pieces, or even some of the late Shostakovich quartets, they're very modern, quote unquote, modern sounding. Some, some people would even say inaccessible on some level. And a lot of that has to do with the performance practice of those works. If you listen to Bartok quartets now, it just sounds, I remember hearing the Isuri quartet, it almost sounded like listening to Mozart. It was just so clean and precise. And the phrasing was just so fluid and, and structured. You have such a responsibility as the performer to sort of carry this uh, yeah. intention of the piece and, and the message of the piece so that it does have a future because I imagine there would have been a lot of preparation, a lot of investment of your time and yourself into learning a great piece like this. You would hope it's going to have a future, right? right? It's not just a one-off. Right, but that not, not, not to dissuade more violinists from playing new works because that, that sounds scary too, <laughs> unless you just want to pick up that sense of responsibility. But it's, you know, it's the more people playing these works also, mm. it doesn't rest on one person's performance. You know, the yes. more people yeah. playing this work the more it will be played. That's how it, how it works. You know, when Gil Shaham or Leila Josephowitz picks up this piece, other orchestras and other performers may think of doing it. Uh, and also yeah. students around the country. Like, for example, the Coleridge-Taylor Perkinson. This is another piece I'm playing on this program. Coleridge-Taylor Perkinson, Louisiana Blues Strut. Suddenly blew oh, up. I know that piece. Yeah, yeah suddenly yeah, yeah. blew up like a year or two ago. You know, Augustine had like played it and suddenly everybody wanted to play it. You know, yeah. I mean, he played it so well. <laughs> but uh, the more people playing a piece, the more it is heard. And also, the more ways you start to listen to that work so that you feel an attachment to it. I mean, another thing that my approach to playing new works is to not recompose it, but just allow myself the freedom to play it differently so that when I do play it as written, <laughs> um, ideally... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Try and stick to the notes on the page. It, yeah, right. It's a it's a choice, and it feels like I am choosing that, and I'm I'm owning these notes. I was doing that with a Chevalier de Saint Georges, you know, Joseph Boulogne concerto, mm. and I ended up just keeping what I rewrote, and I just kind of rewrote the piece. <laughs> and you know, but this is mine now. Yeah, this yeah. is this. Well, I mean, I I mention his name always. It's always referenced. Yeah, um, yeah but this is mine now, right? But I try to do that too. 
you know, Mozart and Brahms, personally, it's really scary to do that because of the tradition that it's entrenched in. But it, it helps me to own the work. So when somebody hears me playing it, hopefully... They feel like it's me speaking and not just the composer. Also just lets you exercise your voice right. uh, and as well as the composer's Which voice. is what's going to end up getting that piece played more, which is the point, uh, ultimately. Well, thank you so much for your insights. I really hope that the premiere of this edition goes super well. Yay. I'm sure it will. Thank you. Wishing you all the best feedback and reception for your take on the piece. But thanks again for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you. Great talking with you. That was Curtis Stewart. Check out the show notes for details of the performance in New York on the 2nd of December. And don't forget to head to our website, thestrad.com, to check out the latest news, articles, and reviews on all things to do with string playing. And if you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward, including 50% off an online subscription for students. And if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for seven days, start reading right away with no strings attached. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or a rating. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.